Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Ayers LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Material or items read on Ayers LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, A Photo Hater's Guide to Getting a Photo Taken by Jason Gay. Then an article by Elizabeth Bernstein, Harness the Healing Power of Water. We'll follow that up with an article by Julie Jargon, How to Prevent Scam Calls. And then an article by Ben Cohen, Winners Know How to Harness Luck. So let's begin with today's first article, A Photo Hater's Guide to Getting a Photo Taken by Jason Gay. I do not enjoy having my photo taken. I never have. Ask my mother, who possesses tucked away in her basement the world's largest collection of photographs of an insolent child pouting, scowling, smirking, scaring at the ground, squinting at the sky, or watching a squirrel in the corner of the yard. I never said cheese. Even by my typically embarrassing standards, it is embarrassing. Sorry, Mom, I went zero for childhood. In adulthood, I've somehow gotten worse. I still pout, scowl, smirk, and stare at squirrels. I love taking photographs of other people, but I do not take selfies. You will never find a photo of me duck-facing in front of Mount Rushmore. I occasionally had to pose for photos in professional settings. In the one the journal uses, I look like a broken ventriloquist dummy. I'm okay with the head cut stipple drawing of me that accompanies this column, but I'll let you in on a secret. I haven't looked like that guy since 1910. The reason I'm telling you all of this is that I've written a new book of humor essays. Thank you all for buying 40 copies, plus an extra three for the dog, the cat, and the goldfish. The book is done. That's that. Title chosen. No more changes. What's there is there, except for one thing. I needed to take an author photo. There was no getting out of this photo. I am not a cool, secretive writer like Thomas Pinchon, who gets to blow it off and remain a mystery. My editor wanted something. I told him I was working on it when all I was doing was praying that the entire publishing industry would collapse, my book and all future books would be canceled, and I would not have to take an author photo. I knew what I didn't want. I knew I didn't want to look too serious because I am not a serious person. I am terrified of coming off as pretentious. I didn't want to look like someone who would tell a three-hour story about a Vermont book festival. I did not want one of those author photos where it looks like the author is smoking a pipe, even if they are not smoking a pipe. I did not want to wear a tie or an ascot, a tall hat, or a parrot. Actually, I would have been okay with a parrot, but where was I going to get a parrot at this hour? I did not want to do weird gestures with my hands. Author photos can get weird with the hands. I did not want to place my head in my palm or lay my chin on a fist like Rodin Stinker, because, as readers of this column know, I barely think at all. I seriously thought about sending my editor an old photograph of Tom Brady or Steve McQueen or Gonzo from the Muppets and seeing if anyone noticed. 
Well, the date arrived and the publishing industry did not collapse. I went to my sister-in-law's house because she is an art teacher and the only person I know who does not regularly take photographs with a thumb in the corner. I did not come with a wardrobe or any fancy technology. It was just me, an iPhone, and her backyard. At first I smiled. She advised me not to. A smile makes you look like an ad for the orthodontist. A humor writer is supposed to look like they're up to something, like they may or may not have planted a whoopee cushion or stolen a watch. After a few minutes, we got it done. There's no thumb in the corner. I'm not saying it's the greatest author's photos ever taken, but I feel confident that I don't look like a broken ventriloquist dummy. When I showed it to my wife, she said I look cute, which felt like the greatest compliment in the world. You all are going to have to wait a couple of months to judge the results, but I hope you like it too. And I'm going to print a few copies for my mother because she and her camera deserved much, much better. And now the next article, Harness the Healing Power of Water by Elizabeth Bernstein. On a day two years ago, Wallace J. Nichols hiked into the California Valley where he had lived for more than 20 years to find his family's home and all their possessions destroyed by a wildfire. Stunned, Dr. Nichols searched the debris. He walked the entire property. Then he did the only helpful thing he could think to do. He went down to the nearby creek, stripped off his clothes, and submerged himself. Dr. Nichols who was a marine scientist, was seeking the healing power of water. It has been a rough few years. Many of us are finding ourselves exhausted, burned out, struggling to build balance back into our lives. We need to recharge. Water can help. Neuroscientists say spending time near oceans, lakes, rivers, and other blue places can provide a range of benefits, including reducing anxiety, easing mental fatigue and rejuvenating us. Participating in water activities such as swimming or surfing can help us enter a flow state where we become fully immersed in what we're doing. This calms our mind's internal state, which is often absorbed by rumination and worry, says Ricardo Gil de la Costa, a neuroscientist and chief executive of Neuroverse, which has studied how water affects our brain. Bodies of water can also produce a glorious sense of awe, the emotional response to something vast that expands and challenges how we see the world. Awe can decrease stress and help us put things into perspective. Water mediates us by taking away all the noise, says Dr. Nichols, whose work focuses on how blue spaces affect our well-being. All we have to do is show up. Water has special properties that may boost nature's positive impact, environmental psychologists say. When you are near it, there is often less visual and auditory information to process. Our mind can rest. The sound of water, typically steady and soft, soothes us. Its smell can provoke positive memories and associations. When we're floating, our body can rest, too, in a way we can never do on land. Most important, water is dynamic. It moves rhythmically, producing a play of light, color, and sound that is mesmerizing. It holds our attention, but not in an overly demanding way. 
Researchers call this soft fascination. It gives our brain a break from the intense, focused attention that much of daily life requires and that is cognitively depleting. Water helps your mind wander in a positive way, says Mark Berman, director of the Environmental Neuroscientist Lab at the University of Chicago. That's why it is so restorative. Here's some advice on how to harness the healing power of water. Remember that all water counts. You likely have some close by, even if it is just a creek along the road. Start there. Then branch out to water you can visit on the weekend or a vacation. Urban water such as rivers, canals, and fountains count. So does domestic water in pools, bathtubs, even sprinklers. Pay attention to the sound, play of light, and movement, says Dr. Nichols, author of Blue Mind, which explores how water makes us happier and healthier. If you can't get to the water, paintings, photographs, videos, and movies can produce some of the same benefits, he says. If you want to boost the positive effect, choose locations that represent positive memories for you. Even virtual reality helps. In research studies, computer-generated virtual reality water scenes boosted participants' mood, likely because they got to interact with the environment. Go often. A little bit makes a big difference. A 2019 study found that it takes at least two hours a week in nature to improve our well-being, which can be broken into smaller stretches. A more recent, yet-to-be-published study found that spending a similar amount of time near water has the same benefits, says Matthew White, an environmental psychologist at the University of Vienna who studies the health benefits of water environments and was lead researcher on both studies. Scientists also have found that people who peered into aquariums had lower heart rates and better moods after just 15 minutes. Try a water sport and get good at it. This will help you experience a flow state where time and your worries fall away as you become fully engaged in what you are doing. Dr. Gil DaCosta says, when you become proficient at an activity, your brain forms new neural pathways which become faster and stronger. This makes it even easier in the future to enter a state of flow while doing the same activity. Listen, it is no coincidence that 9 out of the 10 most popular soundscapes on the Calm app involved rain. Number 1, rain on leaves. One of the most calming properties of water is its sound, Dr. White says. In a study published in May, he and colleagues found that the water sounds people find most restorative are a rainforest with rain, a beach, and a babbling brook. When the researchers added biotic sounds from living beings to the water sounds, people like them even more. Make an audio recording of your favorite water. It will trigger happy memories. Use your imagination. You can spend time on the water anywhere, anytime in your mind. And when the water you imagine is water you have enjoyed in real life, the positive effect will be even stronger, Dr. Nichols says. Often, when I feel overwhelmed, I close my eyes and picture myself sailing years ago off the coast of Michigan with my dad and sisters. I visualize the sun sparkling on the water, the sound of the waves splashing against the boat, the voices of my family. Almost immediately, I feel calmer. 
When Dr. Nichols surfaced for air after submerging himself in Mill Creek, behind the ruins of his still smoldering home, he sobbed. Then he floated on his back until he felt calm. Since then, he has gone into the creek each day after working on his property. It is like a daily reset, he knows. He says, I don't know how I would have gotten through all my feelings without it. And now the article by Julie Jargon, How to Prevent Scam Calls. Scammers are always finding new ways to dupe people out of money. In the United States, phone calls remain the primary way swindlers hook older victims. A study published by the Federal Trade Commission found that 24% of adults over age 60 who reported losing money to a scam in 2021 said it started with a phone call. The largest percentage of any method, including email, text, and mail. For victims 80 and older, phone calls were behind 40% of scams. Scams range from robocalls pitching car warranties to young people posing as grandchildren in need of a bailout. The best way to protect against phone scams, online safety experts say, is not to receive the phone calls in the first place. So how do you do that? While ignoring mystery calls is effective, it isn't always feasible. Perhaps you don't have all the numbers of health care providers, insurance companies, and other vital services stored in your phone's contacts. Also, caller ID often doesn't identify the name of the business that is calling. Tech companies are developing solutions for diverting scam calls. And even though the majority of Americans over 65 have smartphones, there are also ways to protect yourself if you're on a landline. Using tech to stop scams. Here are some things to do. Pick one to start and see if it works. Have artificial intelligence take your calls. Online safety company Aura has developed a bot to catch calls on iPhone and Android phones before they get to the recipient. The feature is expected to be available soon. When a call comes from a number that is not in the recipient's contact list, the bot answers and asks the caller's name and reason for calling. The software uses that information, along with the caller's phone number, to determine whether it's legitimate. If the AI decides the call is fraudulent, the software blocks the call and notifies the recipient and provides a transcript. If it can't determine the legitimacy, the recipient receives a notification and then can choose whether to accept the call or send it to the Aura app's spam folder. A setting allows Aura to notify loved ones or caregivers if the recipient accepts potentially malicious calls. Caregivers can even enable a setting that sends all suspicious calls directly to spam. Even if a caregiver installed the app, users can still remove it. The Aura app costs $22 a month for two adults. Prices vary for families and individuals. If you have Google's Pixel Android phone, Google Assistant can automatically screen calls from unknown callers. If the Assistant determines the call to be spam, your phone hangs up on the caller. If you tap Screen Call, Google Assistant will ask who's calling and why. You'll see a real-time transcript and can choose whether to accept or decline the call. Set your phone to block calls. 
iPhone users can silence unknown callers using the phone setting. Calls from people who aren't in your contact list or with whom you haven't previously been in contact won't ring, but they will appear in your recent call list and be sent to voicemail. Update your contact list with important numbers so that you don't miss calls from a doctor's office or other important business lines. People with newer Android phones can also block spam calls in their phone settings. Filtered calls won't ring or provide missed call or voicemail notifications, but will end up in your call history and voicemail. Smartsung Galaxy phone owners can use SmartCall, which flags suspected spam calls and allows you to block and report them. You can block specific numbers on iPhones and Android manually. Use an app to block calls. If following steps to block calls on your phone feels cumbersome or unwanted calls are still slipping through, there are other apps, many free, that can do it for you. They often use a log of known or reported spam numbers to determine an incoming call's validity. CTIA, the Wireless Industries Trade Association, lists robocalling blocking apps for Apple and Android devices. What else can you do? A majority of United States adults over the age of 65 own a smartphone, according to Pew Research Center, but many still use landlines, which are harder to patrol. You can stop some unwanted calls by adding your number to the National Do Not Call Registry. You can also ask your phone company about calling blocking options, which usually cost extra. Here are some tips from the AARP for recognizing fraudulent calls. Verify the caller. If a caller claims to be a grandchild or your bank, tell the person you'll call back and then hang up. Ask for the caller's number. If the person refuses, that's a red flag. If there's any doubt, call the number you already have on file. Screen calls from your area code. Scammers use caller ID spoofing to hide their locations, and spam calls can appear to be originating in your own area code. An AARP survey found that 59% of respondents said they're more likely to answer the phone if a number bears their area call. Don't be fooled. Don't engage. If you can afford to ignore a mystery call, don't pick up the phone. If you're expecting a call and have to answer, proceed with caution. Don't press any keys or answer any questions in response to a pre-recorded message, and don't opt to speak to a live operator. If you doubt the legitimacy of a call, hang up. And now the article by Ben Cohen, Winners Know How to Harness Luck. This was the one week when geniuses waited by their phones hoping a stranger would call and give them life-changing news. They won the Nobel Prize. These scientific luminaries actually have something in common with people who reach the top of their fields in any business. They had to be talented to get there, but talent alone wasn't enough. They also had to be lucky. As it turns out, the scholars who set to quantify the role of talent and luck in career success were recently presented with an honor of their own, and it was only slightly less prestigious than the Nobel Prize. They won the IG Nobel Prize. 
The Ig Nobel Prizes have been awarded since 1991 to work that makes us laugh, then think, which is a refreshing break from the stuff that makes us think, but isn't meant to make anyone laugh. The year's Ig Nobel for economics went to those who found mathematical proof that the most successful people aren't the ones you might suspect. They're not the most gifted or creative or motivated. What they have is the most luck. Luck is the most valuable force that society routinely undervalues. Take a peek behind the curtain of any good business and you won't have to look very far to find it. Warren Buffett frequently mentions how lucky he's been. Elon Musk has never been accused of such modesty and even he has tweeted multiple times that luck is the best superpower. They don't share much by way of business philosophy, but two of the world's richest people seem to believe it's the one variable that can make or break careers. Success is a measure of how talent responds to luck. Luck is only helpful if, when it arrives, you are up to the task, the movie director and producer Judd Aptopoe told me. If it arrives and you aren't, that luck will end your career. I reached out to the comedian involved with classics like The 40-Year-Old Virgin and Superbad because, as it happens, it took a humorous award to recognize the people who take luck seriously. The Ig Nobel Prizes were built on the premise that truth can be found in the trivial. I love that. So does the only person with an individual Nobel and Ig Nobel. Andre Geim won his Nobel in Physics for his work on graphene in 2010 and his Ig Nobel in Physics a decade earlier for his work making frogs levitate. And there's a reason he's proud to flaunt the one that celebrates people who know how to laugh at themselves. More often than not, Dr. Geim told me, there is a brilliant scientific story behind those laughs. That's what the Ig Nobel Committee liked about this paper that used a computer model to separate talent from luck and success. Without luck, people's hope in the long run of being really successful seems pretty slim, said Mark Abrahams, founder of the Ig Nobles and editor of the magazine Annals of Improbable Research. But there seems to be a lot of people who have been extremely successful in their careers who are quite certain that it's entirely due to their talent. I spoke recently with three Italian scholars who refuted that fallacy of success. While humor isn't exactly part of the scientific process, anyone who sneaks a joke past the editors of an academic journal deserving it a noble Andrea Respedardo, Alexandro Puccino, and Alessio Emanuel Bedundo seemed delighted by their entertaining paper. It was, that it was as if years of thinking about chance and circumstance had conditioned the Ig Nobel laureates to look at the world as happy-go-lucky observers. Their paper used theory to answer the fundamental question in business of what makes some people more successful than others. The associate professors at the University of Catala in Sicily made for a natural team. Dr. Biondo is an economist, and Drs. Rapisardo and Puccino are physicists. Together, they programmed a computer model to study how talent and luck collide. 
To run their simulations, they built a small world inside a box. There were hypothetical people with different levels of talent distributed along a bell-shaped curve, randomly bouncing into green dots and red dots. Green for good luck, red for rotten luck. The red dots cut their success in half, but the green dots doubled it, proportional to their talent, since more talented people tend to be better at capitalizing on the opportunities that luck presents. To put it another way, basketball players are more likely to make a shot when they're open, but they're still not going to make as many as Steve Curry. Their experiment showed that having average talent but ample luck is better than lots of talent and little luck. And the most successful people in their simulations were the ones with moderate talent and magnificent luck. The idea behind mediocrity is that talent wins, but the Ig Nobel laureates think that idea is laughably wrong. They say anyone who achieves success has an obligation to acknowledge luck. If you are a very successful person, says Dr. Biondo, you owe something to the context. But is there anything we can do to manipulate that context? The Italians have two practical suggestions. To reap the benefits of randomness, embrace it. If you're in the business of betting on talent, for example, they recommend spreading money to fund more people. Some will get lucky, some won't. But that's impossible to predict in advance, so you might as well hedge your bets. Their advice on how people can make their own luck is essentially this. Expose, explore, exploit. Try a bunch of things. Find out what you like and figure out what you're good at. Then focus your talents and get to work. That's how you can take advantage if the world evolves your way. Svante Pablo, a recent Nobel Prize winner in physiology or and medicine for his work on human evolution is a fitting case study. The geneticists came along at precisely the right time for technological breakthroughs to expand the limits of his field, and he's the first to admit that his achievements, like sequencing the Neanderthal genome and discovering an extinct species through DNA from a fossil bone fragment, required more than intellectual talent. He could put himself in a cave, But what he found once he got there was beyond his control. You have to be very lucky, he said. The Italians understood as much long before the Ig Nobel ceremony. The story of their success began more than a decade ago when Dr. Puccino stumbled across an Italian translation of The Peter Principle, a book about the notion that every person in a workplace tends to rise to his level of incompetence. It was originally meant as satire, but instead became an influential law of business management. In other words, it made people laugh, then think. It also led to a paper back in 2009 from Dr. Pacino and Riappi Starda that suggested a new, surprisingly efficient method of avoiding such incompetence, simply promoting employees at random. For that counterintuitive finding, They won their first Ig Nobel. One lucky break sent them down a path to two award-winning papers. Both were made possible by the very phenomenon they describe. The common ingredient is the beneficial role of randomness. That brings 
us to the end of today's articles, and it feels good to be back. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll soon be reading more articles. Thank you for listening.